Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The bipartisan $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act is law. Republicans launch an impeachment inquiry and block a $65 billion aid package to Ukraine. Despite a Washington visit by Vladimir Zelensky, the EU starts the accession process, but Vladimir Putin claims he's winning as his Ukrainian stooge Viktor Orban blocks $50 billion in desperately needed European aid. And despite initially criticizing Israel for killing too many civilians in fighting Hamas, Washington has backed down to allow the war to continue as international criticism of Israel mounts. Xi Jinping visits Hanoi uh, to end and manages to reap some gains uh, after President Biden's visit to the country to solidify American alliances across the region. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much. Welcome uh, back to uh, the second to last, the penultimate show, uh, Washington Roundtable, uh, before we part and have our year in review program uh, next Friday. Michael, uh, the NDAA uh, has passed. We talked about the conference, uh, conference version of it uh, last week, but talk to us a little bit about the political mechanics, right? I mean, we're still looking at uh, appropriations and a lot of questions about that. Uh, we still don't have uh, the aid package, uh, the supplemental package. Uh, the bulk of that is Ukraine aid, but there's also Israel as well as some Taiwan money in there. Uh, the border has been the issue. Chuck Schumer is keeping the Senate around next week uh, to try to see uh, if we can do it. Uh, and I think that you and many others on this program and elsewhere have criticized the White House as well as um, the majority leader for not taking a seriously negotiated deal on the border in order to get the votes and get this package through. And now all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, it's not going through, even though Vladimir Zelensky visited us. Walk us through where we are politically, appropriations and where we are on Ukraine aid. Sure. So as you pointed out, right, the NDA did pass this week, uh, not without some drama. Uh, the Senate did pass the NDA overwhelmingly, uh, 87 at the 13. Uh, but that was after uh, several senators actually tried to stop it by reopening the bill uh, to amendments uh, to get policies in there that they didn't uh, didn't get. Uh, and also Senator uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado attempted to place a hold on the NDAA to try and keep the Senate in town to finish uh, border negotiations. Uh, all that was negotiated away, and the uh, NDAA was passed by the Senate on Wednesday. The House then took it up, and they passed it overwhelmingly as well, 310 to 118. Mm -hmm. However, only 45 Democrats voted against it. 73 Republicans voted against it. Uh, and it had to be done on, on suspension of the rules because the House Republicans were not knew they could not pass a rule or even get it out of the Rules Committee. Uh, and this was because you know, the Freedom Caucus in the background was fighting against the NDAA, and they sent out a memo. Uh, calling this year's NDAA an utter disaster for House Republicans and a massive unforced error from leadership. Uh, now, we talked last week about how they were very unhappy about uh, the FISA uh, extension being put on the NDAA, uh, temporary extension only until April, something uh, that Speaker Johnson had to do. Otherwise, 
Uh, these authorities would have expired, give them time to work out the changes that they want to do. Uh, but also the Freedom Caucus is really upset about what's not in the bill. They're very upset that uh, the policy provisions on uh, transgender surgeries, uh, abortion and banning drag shows were also all, all dropped uh, from the bill. But despite that, as you mentioned, uh, the bill has passed overwhelmingly and the president will sign it. Um, now we get to the real sticky stuff that you that you mentioned. Now, first um, on the supplemental, uh, you know, I mean, remember you know where we are and how we got here. I mean, President Zelensky was here last December, December 22, just before Christmas, and gave a, an address to a joint session of Congress. And it was overwhelming support uh, for him and Ukraine and their struggle. And after the break, Congress came back, and I've mentioned this repeatedly, Ken Calvert, who chairs the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, asked the administration in early February for the Ukraine supplemental so they can get to work on it. And the administration ignored him February, March, April, May, June, July. And it wasn't until August that they sent over a supplemental request when they realized they're about to run out of money. But at that point, everything had changed. You know, we'd passed the FRA. Uh, so the Republicans went in a much different position on spending. Uh, and, you know, th there was I think the administration lost a lot of time to make their case of Ukraine. And now they asked Zelensky to come back here to do the job that the president really should be doing himself. And I think in many in, in some instances, they really embarrassed Zelensky. He came and gave a, a talk to a bunch of senators. A lot of senators didn't even show up for the meeting. Senator J.D. Vance made a spectacle of walking out of the meeting in the middle of, of Zelensky talking to the senators. And nothing has really changed. It was it's been crystal clear for months now that in order to get this done, that we're going to have to tie some border policy to the Ukraine um, legislation. And, and, and the administration opened that door by asking, as part of the Ukraine supplemental, uh, to put border funding in there. So uh, this is nothing new. And now, um, and, and, and I think that this is really reminiscent of how, the, how Schumer and the administration played the debt ceiling discussions, where they kept saying, we're going to win, we're going to win. And the administration wouldn't negotiate, and all of a sudden we're weak out from default, and now they got to step in and cut a really bad deal. Last week we talked about how the White House had not been engaged in this discussion. Now they finally are. On, on Monday, Schumer asked Mike Johnson to keep the House in session next week because they, they left on Thursday uh, to, to handle the supplemental. And Johnson said no because there's no legislation for him to look at. And finally on Tuesday, the White House got engaged in these discussions. And in just that short period of time, enough progress has been made that Schumer is now keeping the Senate in session next week with the hopes of, of striking a deal on the supplemental. Now, th but the calendar is working against everybody because even if they are able to come to an agreement, and it seems like the White House is making some concessions, which we expected them to make on border policy, which will help Democrats as well, if they come uh, to an agreement, which I'm not so sure they will. I mean, Senator Thune, who is the senator's, uh, the Republican whip in the Senate, said he does not think they'll come to an agreement this week. Um, but if they do, this deal is going to legislation will hold out there until the Republicans come back January 9th. And it gives people a lot of time on both the left and the right to sink it. The progressives will be unhappy that there's changes to border policy and the far right will be unhappy saying there's not enough changes to border policy. And the Iowa caucuses are January 15th. So what happens if Trump starts to weigh in on this legislation and says it doesn't do enough? It doesn't help. Uh, that could also tank the legislation. So uh, I'm very concerned about this. And it, it really just le it lends to the total mess we're about to face when everybody comes back in January, which will include appropriations as well, because there's still no deal on a top line uh, for appropriations. The House and has gone home. Right. And how is that right? I mean, the House has gone home. But how does that play, uh, do you think, especially given the sheer number of folks who are retiring? Right. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is not coming back. Uh, I think what the, today's his last day in Congress, isn't it? 
uh, yes, Kevin McCarthy will not be coming back. Uh, and so the, as we talked about uh, last week, you know, the, the, the five seat majority has gone from four with the expulsion of Santos now to three with McCarthy leaving. Um, look, as far as a deal on appropriations, it doesn't, I don't think it matters so much right now. Um, they have to get to a top line so the appropriators can write the bills. Look, the guys on the far right are going to vote against these things anyway. So they need a bipartisan consensus here, which they still don't have. And again, there's a lot of frustration from House Republican leadership. I was up on the Hill earlier this week meeting with uh, leadership staff. Uh, the speaker sent another offer to Schumer on Monday. Uh, I'm assuming that, that the offer was not accepted since we don't have a deal yet, but they feel that they're being ignored on trying to work out a deal here because they're under a lot of pressure, uh, again, from the Freedom Caucus to ignore a lot of the side deals that were made. Uh, and now the Freedom Caucus continues to move the line. They're saying that they want any deal to include significant reductions in total programmatic spending year over year. Now, which is going to be very, very difficult to do, but I don't think they're going to have to do that. But um, they're, they're going to have to come to an agreement before they come back in January. Uh, and, and right now, the plan is to come back in January and deal with it, and there's just not enough time. Uh, and that makes a shutdown uh, on January uh, 19th very, very real, a, a partial government shutdown. Because remember, four of the appropriations right. bills expire. The other eight expire on February 2nd. So uh, it really, really adds. And, and, they, and, and as leadership's already saying, they expect January to be a total mess. Uh, it is. Uh, and as we said, right, I mean, that was kind of a novel way of doing sort of a rolling shutdown where different parts of the government run out of money at, 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 di at different times, which is sort of well, odd, odd way of doing it. Uh, Dove, uh, your sense uh, and takeaways uh, on this and where we uh, end up uh, ultimately. Um, well, this is problematic. I mean, we we need everything yeah. really to work. It was great to see some bipartisanship on members coming together to pass the NDAA. Right. I mean, ideally, everybody gets so annoyed at the fringes that, the, you know, the middle ends up governing. But your sense. Well, first of all, uh, yesterday when I was on the Hill, what I was hearing uh, was very similar to what Michael said about the uh, uh, the whole question of when you actually want the supplemental to go to the floor or, or even uh uh, to be voted on, because uh, if you do it, if you if you do anything now, if you cut any kind of deal now, then, yes, there's going to be a lot of time to mess with it before actually it can be dealt with. So um, what I'm hearing is there's a desire on the part of those who want the supplemental to go through. And by the way, they think um, they think it's got a chance, but not not terribly much. But those who want it to go through um, don't really want it to be dealt with now. Um, the appropriations, there, there seems to be a sense that, that I'm hearing that, yeah, you know, these these minibuses that people are talking about might actually happen, um, partly because nobody really wants to shut the government down. Um, whether all of them, all the minibuses will get through or just some, I think defense is likely to get through. Um, one thing I want to point out about the NDAA, because it, it touches on uh, America's relations with Israel. The NDAA is get not giving more money for missile defense, $500 million. It'll pass appropriations. So that, that'll happen. Forty-seven and a half for defend, uh, emerging defense technologies, 55 for counter drones, training on the new uh, KC-46s they're going to get in 2025, an envoy for the Abraham Accords. I mean, this is a, a menu of things that Israel wants. It, it's, it's getting its wish list. And 
So whatever else is going on, and we can talk about that later regarding Gaza and Hamas and the war and all that, Congress is still giving them every single thing they want. Well, uh, but let me uh, bring that uh, up right now, right? Uh, Jake uh, Sullivan uh, visited Israel in the wake of the president saying, look, we, we really need to wrap this up. The casualty rates are getting too high. Israel's being a little too indiscriminate. A uh, lot of evidence, unfortunately, of that indiscriminance in terms of some of the targets, uh, the targeting. Everybody, on the one hand, appreciates the difficulty of fighting Hamas in tight urban areas. On the other hand, the death toll is is very high and is mounting, and the humanitarian condition uh, is uh, getting worse. And there is a sense that Israel is somewhat unchained in this, right? Erecting a flag, for example, was not the right thing to do any more than bulldozing cemeteries and the like, uh, which was isn't paying well, playing well as well as uh, the casualties. But after Sullivan visited Israel, met with Netanyahu, who said, "I'm sorry, I'm disregarding you, and we're going to continue for many more months." The, you know, Sullivan said, well, they're going to keep fighting it. But they told us, pinky promise, that they're going to be more careful. Um, I mean, th- doesn't doesn't this actually all strengthen Netanyahu's hand ultimately when he's like, hey, the U.S. Congress is going to back me no matter what the president says. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm going to do no matter what international criticism there is uh, ultimately. Well, that that's kind of what Congress just did. Um, a couple of things uh, uh, regarding Netanyahu's latest uh, outrageous behavior, at least in my view. First of all, he ma- he's made it very clear he doesn't care about a two-state solution. He doesn't want what he calls a fatastan uh, in, uh, in Gaza. So what does he want? Well, he clearly does not want any two states. He wants one state uh, that will play into the hands of his right-wing extremists. Um, that is a major slap at, at America, because that's been our policy forever. Uh, So and then another straw in the wind, which I found kind of interesting. There was this big photo. Thank you, President Biden. uh, That was up there, I believe, in Jerusalem. It's been taken down and replaced with thank you, Congresswoman Stefanik, because of uh, what she uh, the way she grilled those three university presidents. Um. Netanyahu clearly is trying to he's playing he's planning his next election and he's trying and he may well be using um, this split with the United States, not just to pursue what he wants to do in Gaza, but to spin up his his settler base, his uh, uh, religious base, uh, his uh, Likud base to support him no matter what. Um, right. There's only one thing that I heard that might change it. The um, One of the religious parties, the Sephardi religious party, Shas, whose uh, great leader who passed away some years ago, was uh, not opposed to uh, a two-state solution and, and even withdrawal from the West Bank. Um, they are apparently talking to... Uh, the gut talking to I'm not sure whom, um, probably the opposition leader in Gantz, uh, about maybe flipping as long as they get their money for in, their institutions. Now, right. my view has always been I don't want to give them an, an extra penny, but if it means uh, re- revitalizing the two state solution, giving the Palestinians some hope, that is a critical element to any deal that would stop the fighting in Gaza. And do you think any of the late uh, recent uh, and thanks, everybody, for being patient. But do you think the recent polls um, showing the unpopularity of the Palestinian Authority? I mean, actually, what Israel is doing is actually improving 
Hamas's proper popularity in some cases. Well, they don't need to really put the the, the PA uh, bureaucracy in there. They've got uh, people like Salam Fayyad, who was the technocratic and very right. capable prime minister. They can put in other people who have links to the PA. There are still some uh, people in exile, uh, Mar- Bargudi, for example, that could come in. I mean, there are options if only the Israelis were willing to take them. You know, my thing would be don't don't make any demarches that you're not going to back up somehow or another, uh, because ultimately that just makes uh, you uh, weak uh, in that process. So the administration should just be like, all right, well, we just got to buckle in and be on the receiving end of it and, uh, you know, run interference uh, whether it's at the United Nations or elsewhere, which they get the ire of some countries. Uh, but to everybody's point here, right, those states are still sticking uh, with the United States and Israel, even if uh, they make criticisms uh, on the margins. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Jim, I want to uh, bring you into the discussion because we heard a little bit about um, where Congress is and that the situation may not be as dire for Ukraine aid. Uh, but we heard from Vladimir Putin, right? He's the first um, time since the invasion that he's had his long rambling multi-hour year end uh, press conferences in which he makes a lot of news. He's convinced he's winning. The war aims haven't changed. He told the Russian people this is really NATO uh, you know, we Russia's in an existential battle. Everybody likes to bandy that term around nowadays uh, for uh, survival. And we've got to sort of come together on this. And I'm winning. And, you know, if you look at the United States, we're not providing the aid Ukraine needs. Right. Zelensky was humiliated in Washington. Uh, you look at the EU coming together. Uh, right. Donald Tusk making the case. Hey, we've got to we've got to push through and we have to support Ukraine no matter what. Fifty billion dollars. The EU is putting aside <laughs> Orban stops that even though accession went through. Where, where are we right now? And is Vladimir Putin winning? Well, you know, I had to do a uh, broadcast yesterday on Alhura, which is, you know, a part of the, the U.S. Uh, outreach. This was to the Middle East. And I had on this panel as myself and a young Russian expert. And this was right after the press conference yesterday. And this young Russian was pushing me saying, uh, saying that, that uh, yeah, we're winning. Uh, Putin is winning, and we're winning in Washington. Washington is now giving up on Ukraine. Uh, and he said that uh, when we have a change of, of presidents in Washington, we'll be able to have a, uh, a conversation and a discussion with the Americans, and we'll be able to build back our American uh, relationship. But, uh, but until there's a, a regime change in Washington next year, uh, this this administration, this Biden administration, we can't deal with them. We can only do maybe prisoner swaps and that's it. But we're winning uh, and uh, and it's just a matter of time. And of course, I just push back on him. And, but but the problem here is that in their mind, they're, they're not just winning on the battlefield. They're winning in Washington. Uh, and they were just crowing about that yesterday. I, I was just amazed at how forward. Uh, this young Russian was uh, just marching up and down about how great things were. So, uh, you know, this what's happening in the European Union hasn't helped either. I think what has helped in the European Union is this. They're beginning accession talks now for Ukraine within the EU. That was great. But the antics of Orban uh, just uh, are just unacceptable. And I think it's 
beginning to show uh, how having an organization like NATO run by consensus uh, is great uh, in theory and great when it's, uh, when it's a good day. But when it's a bad day, uh, this kind of holdout by one country uh, on something as, assistant, uh, as, as essential as assistance to Ukraine, that's a big problem. Uh, and certainly, what, you know, what do we just say about that? We've got that in the House of Representatives. Uh, so I tell you, it's a, uh, I can see why Putin thinks that. We have been warning on this show forever that that's how Moscow would look on the, the, the dissonance in Washington and also in Europe. Uh, and now we're seeing that. And uh, we've, we've got to disprove Putin of this idea that what, what's, what is a uh, problem that we're having isn't something that we can overcome. And the same thing in the European Union and, and Orban. They're looking for workarounds right now to work around Hungary. So uh, we've got to be successful on this. But, but the last point I'll make, though, is even if we're able to... Uh, to finally get a supplemental, uh, and uh, and the EU is able to work around Hungary, again the the Ukraine planners uh, are not going to have a a um, you know a confident and consistent supply of not just equipment but funding, so they can do long term planning, so that they can they can try to deal with another offensive, a different offensive come the springtime. Uh, they're if they don't know where the money is going to come from, how can they do any planning? So that's that's a problem we have to keep in mind uh, for sure. Is it? Uh, you know, I, I would uh, point out and one of the things which I was going to say is uh, that if, you know, everybody says, oh, you know, just wait, BB is going to be gone and this is a this disaster. Oh, you know, Trump, uh, whether for intelligence or, uh, you know, any kind of, you know, trying to spearhead an insurrection. He's still on the political scene and could become the next president of the United States. Well, you know, you'll just watch, you know, Orban is going to get gilded. Oh, you know, Putin's going to collapse. None of these things ever happen. And I I just have to say, right, that today it's being reported. And I think CNN has it, um, you know, the discipline, the, the binder uh, that folks are looking for uh, from the documents that President Trump, former President Trump removed uh, from office was among the most sensitive intelligence we have on Russia including you know you know agents and you name it uh and and here we are now you know two and a half years after we left office and nobody can find this binder uh almost three years uh so um you know it's a legitimate question where did the binder go and if i'm vladimir putin i actually am gonna feel and i'm if i'm got some even if it's a russian kid i'm gonna feel pretty cocky about that um uh anyway uh but uh, Patrick, I want to uh, bring you uh, into uh, this uh, discussion uh, as well. You wrote a great piece uh, on sort of in, in, in Washington, we have a tendency of denigrating, you know, well, it's the North Koreans, it's the Russians. Look, it's two pariah states, the Russian, you, you know, the North Korean weapons don't even work that well. Whereas actually the case you were making is this is far more serious of an alliance uh, and that we should be actually more concerned about it than, than we should walk us through the case. And again, bring us up to speed on how the Chinese are trying to portray this, because on the one hand, they're trying to be supportive of their, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, axis of evil uh, compatriots, while at the same time, actually angling for some of the $50 billion reconstruction aid in Ukraine, given that Kiev still has actually remarkably, you know, still looks remarkably warmly upon the Chinese. Anyway, walk us through that dynamic. 
Well, yeah, there's no honor among thieves, and these are all real politic practitioners' states we're talking about, but still, they are forging uh, common ground when it comes to pushing back on the U.S. and what we're trying to do uh, in the world with our allies. The, the piece I wrote uh, in The Messenger on the North Korean-Russian uh, cooperation says, we're underestimating how important this is. It's so easy to dismiss a million artillery shells, including many that don't work well, and say, well, that's nothing. You know, Russia's expending that almost uh, once a month. But Russia can only uh, build uh, and, and manufacture two million of these shells a year. So a million matters. It matters to the brave Ukrainians on the ground. It matters psychologically that North Korea is supporting um, without reservation anything Russia does. Um, and it matters uh, in terms of what Russia is providing North Korea and the fact that the North Koreans succeeded after two failures to put up a military satellite and now is expected to launch a new ICBM test this month uh, in the coming weeks, according to the South Korean government. Um, it could it, That may be the one that shows us that uh, North Korea has developed a reentry vehicle uh, technology. If so, that was with Russian assistance. Now, this plays into China two different ways. Uh, one, North Korea uses this as leverage on China, saying, look, uh, we're going to escalate further and destabilize Northeast Asia, China, if you, if you don't help us. Um, so it's kind of extracting benefits from their other uh, large uh, power, uh, but, but playing a balance of power game at the same time. And yet you've got China and Russia fighters and bombers and maritime aircraft, electronic warfare aircraft just flying through the air identification zone of South Korea and Japan this week uh, for the second time this year. Um, they don't do that every day, but they did it again. Um, so there's um, hard power exhibitions going on here by Russia and China and North Korea. And at the same time, there's uh, there are different agendas that they have and also different diplomatic games like what the Chinese are up to by sitting down finally with Michael Chase, our Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense this past week to talk about the uh, calendar of military to military engagements uh, for next year between US and China. That sounds like progress to those who wanna hear progress on, on mill to mill relations. But then uh, what are the Chinese up to in the South China Sea? Well, they're pushing around and shouldering and water cannoning uh, with more regularity in the, in the recent days. Uh, than they have in the past, our Philippine ally. And that's why Jake Sullivan had to get on the phone this week with uh, the Philippine National Security Advisor and the Japanese National Security Advisor and talk about steps that we have to take. So this is a really uh, fluid and active uh, engagement right now that is working across theaters, not just Europe and, and Asia, but also the Middle East. All three of these theaters are now interlinked in ways that are threatening our interests I just uh, briefly uh, uh, want to go back to you, uh, Michael, uh, and uh, ask you a little bit about the impeachment inquiry and how this is also going to end up uh, playing. Uh, and, um, you know, what are, you know, you, you mentioned President Trump weighing in, right? He hasn't been, there. people have a perception he's not weighing in. I believe he weighs in plenty. He just does it in private now, right? I mean, ultimately he wants to win he wants to shape things, and it's not necessarily, you know, bring from the podium that he's uh, uh, he's going to do it. Talk to about, uh, talk to us about the impeachment inquiry and whether or not it's going to get any traction and what it changes, given that almost everything in this town is interconnected. Uh, and then, actually, the influence that Trump is playing, even if that influence is not necessarily right as overt and open and you know as it as it once was certainly during his last uh two uh races uh and tendencies when he was actually in office no i think you're exactly right uh, unfortunately uh, i think this is still trump's party uh, and he plays an enormous 
role uh, behind the scenes. I think the impeachment is, is part of that. Uh, so, you know, look, on Wednesday, the House voted along party lines. Every Republican House member voted on a resolution authorizing an impeachment inquiry into uh, Biden. Now, remember, you know, McCarthy had announced an impeachment inquiry back in September, but this vote you know, makes it official. Uh, but, you know, there, even though every Republican voted for it, a lot of the Republicans who did still have acknowledged that there's still no evidence to impeach Biden. I mean, Don Bacon came out saying there's probably not high crimes and misdemeanors that Joe Biden's committed. Uh, Dusty Johnson, who's a confidant of Kevin McCarthy, said there's not enough evidence to impeach. Uh, Dan Newhouse, who had actually one of the few members remaining that voted to impeach Trump, said it's not a foregone conclusion that the inquiry will end in impeachment. I, I hope he's right, but I just don't see it. I think once that genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. How do you launch an impeachment inquiry and then say, oh, we're not impeaching. We, Joe Biden's innocent. We didn't find any wrongdoing and all is good in, in an election year <laughs> of all years. So right. I don't see how this doesn't end up in uh, impeachment. Uh, I think there, there are a lot of members who are going to say, look, let's let the voters decide. It's election year. You know, Trump's got his legal problems. Biden's got his. Let's let the voters decide. Uh, that remains to be seen. I'm not confident. I think, like I said, once uh, you let the genie out of the bottle, I think it's hard, hard to put back in. And, and this will distract time and attention away from things that really need to be done to serve the American people. Because in the end, this is a waste of time. Uh, even if they impeach out of the House, the Senate's never going to convict. And you're wasting time in the Senate, you're wasting time in the House. We've got serious problems at home and abroad that we need to deal with. Dove, how do you think uh, this is uh, going to be playing uh, and then uh, Jim and uh, Patrick, I've got separate questions to ask each of you, given that actually there are some significant concerns, obviously, in Europe, right? This is happening. One of the cases that a lot of European politicians are making is, hey, we've got to really step up our game because this guy could be back. And indeed, uh, if you're Chinese, you have some trepidation. It could be worse in some ways, but it will actually be less disciplined. So it actually might be good uh, for you, given that you know, Trump had told Xi, I don't really care what you do on any of these things as long as I get green deals. Anyway, uh, Dove, uh, get your uh, sense on this uh, before we go to Jim and Patrick. Well, I, I think that uh, our, the bad guys uh, are just enjoying the chaos. Uh, I had a piece this morning about uh, Xi visiting Vietnam and coming up with uh, a whole host of new agreements, essentially to offset the Biden visit in September. Uh, and when she looks at Washington and he sees uh, a Congress that simply cannot get its act together at all, uh, Putin, of course, is delighted because Ukraine's not getting the money it wants at the time it needs. Um, there's uh, bipartisan support for going after the Iranians, but in practice, nothing's happening there either. So when and, you know, Patrick already talked about North Korea, it, it, the problem fundamentally is no matter who is elected president, if Congress cannot do anything, that really makes it difficult for the United States to push itself out in front. And of course, if Trump is president, that just compounds the matter. But I think, you know, everybody's wringing their hands over Trump. But the fact of the matter is, whoever is president is going to have a lot of trouble if the Congress, if, if, if the composition of Congress is more or less the same. And oh, by the way, if the Democrats take the House with less than a handful of votes, then you've got the, the squad and the far left playing the same games that the far right is playing with the same kind of outcomes. Uh, Jim, uh, how are European governments already starting to potentially indemnify themselves? 
Well, you know, it's a good question. And and I, I've just past week since we last met uh, as a little group, uh, I've seen lots of allies. And at one point this kind of come across a little bit of a surprise is that um, I don't think all of them realize how serious things are in Washington, whether it's the assistance to Ukraine just as its own issue or uh, or um, how this is playing in presidential politics and the fact that the NATO summit is coming up and will be smack dab in the middle of this chaos in July. Um, and so, you know, I, I will say that European allies have been watching this for a while. It's not like they haven't been watching. They have been. And they have been worried about the return of Trump. Uh, but I think when they come to Washington and they sit down with a lot of us on the outside, uh, think tanks and other places uh, over over meals, um, and they hear us talk, I think they they leave a little more gloomy than they arrive. Um, now, you know, maybe we're too gloomy. <laughs> maybe we're sitting there and we're giving them nightmares as they return back to uh, to their home countries. But but I, I have noticed that, uh, you know, particularly in talking about the summit, and, and they say, so what should the administration be doing uh, for the summit? What are their plans? And we sit there and go, oh, my God. Well, you've got to understand how this plays in our politics. And I think um, that that kind of makes a, 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 an impression on them. So 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 the bottom line here is that, yes, the allies uh, are and for a while have been worried about the dysfunction in Washington um, and the fact that that Trump could come back. Uh, but I think the the kind of the gloom that it, frankly is in a lot of Washington right now, that was lost on them until they came here. And then they talked to talk to us uh, and they they leave a bit more worried, not just about the return of Trump, but but the fate of assistance to Ukraine and uh, the U.S. participation in NATO and this type of thing. They leave more worried than when they arrived. Patrick. Well, allies that are, that are most vulnerable are the most worried about the potential for an unpredictable return of President Trump. Um, you know, Taiwan would be in the front lines of that. Um, so you might have the DPP uh, reelected uh, in January. But um, by 2025, if they're dealing with a U.S. president that may want to make a deal with China, um, Taiwan will have to be hedging even with it, that DPP government. Um, on the other hand, uh, if Trump is uh, saber rattling like the Chinese, then we could be looking like uh, a more fractious, more potential conflict between U.S. and China, and that could drive uh, allies in, in different directions. Philippines will be worried as well. I think Japan, uh, Australia will be strong regardless of what happens. I think South Korea could be a strong ally, especially with the current UN administration, but they could be seriously weakened and you could work back toward a progressive government in South Korea uh, while a Trump uh, second term uh, happened. Uh, and that could undermine U.S.-South Korean cooperation. So it does depend on the circumstances. But um, in general, uh, this is a question our allies are asking every single day right now. And, and the effect today is that it discounts U.S. Uh, foreign and defense commitment and policy out of the Biden administration because they're discounting for a potential return to Trump. Dove, you have an in interesting update about uh, former President Trump. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the Senate just, uh, as Michael can confirm, the Senate essentially passed legislation to make it almost impossible for Trump to pull out of NATO. However, he could pull out of the Integrated Military Command. Uh, that would really wreck NATO. But de Gaulle did that. And the French, as you recall, stayed inside NATO. So Trump could be complying with the law while screwing NATO at the same time. Well, I'd like to add as well is 
that he could just downgrade our political participation at NATO. In other words, instead of sending an ambassador to NATO, he could just leave it to the charge, you know, the number two at the U.S. mission NATO. Uh, and uh, and he wouldn't go to summits. Uh, he would send the deputy assistant secretary of defense for Europe and NATO would go to the summit or, you know, it would be uh, it would be a disengagement uh, and a dealing with NATO from a lower level. That uh, is equally uh, as uh, chaotic uh, in terms of leadership within the alliance. And uh, uh, and it's something that if that made Trump uh, feel like he was, uh, you know, making a good move for the cause of chaos, uh, that's something he could do. And a quick reminder to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own J.J. Gertler. Dove, uh, going to come back to you, uh, and if you want to weigh in on this, or anybody wants to weigh in on this, uh, works as well. But also, uh, Turkey is back to blocking uh, Sweden again, right? It was like, oh, you know, they got their F-16s, everything's fine, we're going to move ahead. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Erdogan is pivoting, and he doesn't seem to be have pivoted anywhere. Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I've been saying all along, just because he sent it to the parliament, uh, that doesn't mean anything because he controls the parliament. Uh, what really is troublesome, in, in many ways, I mean, my Swedish friends will be upset that they're not the most troublesome uh, issue in NATO right now. But frankly, the fact that Orban is on uh, Erdogan's side on Sweden and doing what uh, Jim already described with respect to Ukraine, I mean, this guy's the Tommy Tuberville of NATO. Uh, and uh, we just have to figure out how we squeeze him, uh, at least to the point where he plays ball with the rest of the alliance. Otherwise, He'll be doing Mr. Trump's work without Mr. Trump having to do it himself. And Vago, if I could jump in to just add that uh, what I've seen with uh, Erdogan in the past is he waits to the last minute around a summit time. He waits the last minute to go ahead and release a hold or, or do whatever it is. I mean, literally the day before so that when he arrives at the summit venue, he's looked upon as this great diplomat and everyone is so happy that he relented and he's greeted with at least publicly, he's greeted as if he's some great statesman when, in fact, you know, he's he set the whole thing up looking like this. But it's been in Madrid. He did that in Vilnius. He did that. And so my thinking is that he'll squeeze the Swedes and try to get out every last drop that he can until the, the until a day before the Washington summit. And then he will release the, his hold. He'll vote in favor of bringing Sweden in. You know, he'll sign the papers yet coming out of the parliament. Uh, and then arrive in Washington as the great statesman. Uh, indeed. Um, we have got uh, a few seconds left. Any last points uh, from uh, the... Oh, let me go. Patrick, let me qu quickly ask you about this. It was an interesting news story uh, that popped up, uh, you know, alleged frustrations uh, at uh, the State Department that Kurt Campbell would be going over uh, to be the deputy secretary. Uh, a little bit of frustration for, from allies of Tori Newland saying, well, she's been in the acting capacity uh, and and she was uh, passed over. I think all of us have a lot of respect for everybody involved in this. Um, but if if the administration's priority is an Asia Pacific strategy, it it sort of can make sense if the Asia you know the architect or one of the architects of that strategy actually goes uh, without being discharitable to anybody. How did you regard that extremely Washingtonian? 
Well, this is real Washington water cooler talk. Um, and while there's not, uh, you know, well, there's always something to the backstory. The reality is, as you just pointed out, Vago, the administration had a choice. Is it going to put uh, its people behind its strategy? Um, if Asia Pacific and Indo-Pacific matters, don't you want the architect for that from the White House to go over and be your deputy secretary of state and put some oomph in the diplomacy for the Indo-Pacific? And the answer is yes. That takes nothing away from Victoria Nuland, who's a great diplomat, a great thinker. Um, find her another great post because she's very important for U.S. foreign policy. But having Kurt Campbell as the deputy to Blinken while he's Blinken's putting out fires around the world uh, is, is a strong signal that the White House means what it says about the China pacing threat. Michael, uh, you get the last word. And just one quick comment. We talk about uh, Trump uh, and, you know, Dove is right. The NDAA did have a provision that requires any future president to go back to Congress to pull us out of NATO. But as Dove points out, the president's got lots of other options uh, not to have us fulfill our NATO obligations. But I think this story in the Wall Street Journal that came out last week that talks about the European, our European allies effectively, you know, disarming themselves and being unready to fight where Germany's got two days worth of ammunition, uh, 200 uh, main battle tanks, only 100 which are, are ready, and it goes country by country, only provides fuel for Trump's fire. And uh, this is, was the talk on the Hill uh, this week where people are mortified uh, by this and that you know, right. the purpose of NATO uh, you know, becomes all of a sudden everybody wants to be under our security umbrella instead of being an integrated fighting force. And the Europeans need to get their act together uh, before Trump comes back. Although, right, I mean, some Europeans, I mean, not the lawyer for them, would say, look, we actually consumed a generation of uh, rearmament because we were either in Iraq or we were in Afghanistan with you. And so by the time we did urgent operational requirements and bought the unmanned systems we need and the extra body armor and the vehicles, a lot of which got blown up and things got expended, it, it actually, you know, d disrupted us. And, you know, everybody had taken their eye off uh, the Russia ball. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, yes. But but there's been a reason to put your eye back on the Russia ball, especially I, I, what we see in Ukraine and what we're I, going to see in Moldova after Ukraine. Absolutely. Uh, and how long and, is right. So, and since 2014, at least. Right. You could say right. that you, sh exactly. you should have had at least an eye uh, on on uh, the Russia ball. Uh, Vaga, the, the most uh, sort of macabre uh, episode I saw on video this week was the discussion between um, Vladimir Putin and his AI twin, Vladimir Putin, during that press conference. I don't know if you saw that <laughs> clip, yes. um, but it was disturbing to me for so many reasons. Um, but 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 the the serious part of that was that know, what, said, where, what do you mean, Patrick? One Putin <laughs> is good. Two Putins are even better and 10 Putins. Oh, my he, God, that's heaven. Even Putin looked somewhat disturbed by his AI image, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, that he could be replicated in that way. Um, and he was thinking about what the implications were. What he said, though, was was still important for security uh, as AI becomes so, such a dominating part of the technology wars that are behind the scenes. Um, and he said, if we can't control it and we can't, we have to dominate this technology, even though we don't know where it ends. That's rather spooky. That means that we can talk about ethical AI all the way all we want in the United States. But we've got countries out there that are determined not to care about that. Well, he's he's actually said this more than once. He said this a couple of years ago. Uh, and of course, the Chinese are already applying AI. That's how they uh, can control a, a population of a billion people. Uh, and it's not the only technology we have to worry about. Um, biotech is, is going to be the same sort of problem. And we really need to think through how we deal with with these 
the combination of of uh, emerging technologies and bad guys. Uh, indeed. Guys, thanks very much again. Looking forward uh, to having you guys back on again next week. Uh, hope you all have uh, a terrific weekend and a terrific week. Thanks to the audience for joining us. Uh, and a very special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this program possible every day and every week. Uh, hope everybody has a great weekend, and we'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you again soon.